0: Welcome to Patricia Raskin's Positive Living, the program that brings you practical and inspiring principles for living more authentic, engaging, and passionate lives. Created by Patricia Raskin, a catalyst for positive change. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of the host, guests, and callers. And now, here's your host, Patricia Raskin. Well, hello,
1: everyone, and welcome. Welcome, I'm Patricia Raskin. I have a very fitting interview today because today is April 28th, which is Holocaust Memorial Remembrance Day, and I celebrated this at my synagogue, and it's very interesting that I'm interviewing a woman who's written a book referring to all of this, and her name is Ayelet Waldman. Her book is Love and Treasure. She is the author of Love and Treasure, The Red Hook Road, and the New York Times bestseller Bad Mother Chronicle of, of Maternal Crimes, Minor Calamities, and Occasional Moments of Grace. Her novel, Love and Other Impossible Pursuits, was adapted into a film called The Other Woman, starring, starring Natalie Portman. Ayelet's personal essays and profiles of such public figures as Hillary Clinton have been published in a wide variety of newspapers and magazines, including the New York Times, Vogue, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal. Her radio commentaries have appeared on All Things Considered and the California Report. And she is here talking about her brand new book, Hot Off the Press, Love and Treasure. Welcome, Ayolette. Oh, thank
0: you so much for having me on the show. I'm yeah. really thrilled to be here.
1: Yeah, it's, it's very exciting. I want to read our listeners a little bit about your book and what it's about and have you explain. Right. Ayolette Waldman's uh-huh. stunning new novel, Love and Treasure, was actually published, uh, not yesterday, but in the last couple of weeks. It already has rave reviews coming in from the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and the New York Post, and the New York Daily News. Love and Treasure ingeniously waves a surprising tale around the fascinating true history of the Hungarian gold train in the Second War. And for those of you who saw Monuments Men, there's a lot of truth there, and this story chronicles similar A similar story. In 1945, in the outskirts of Salzburg, victorious American soldiers capture a train loaded with riches piles of gold watches and fountains of mountains of fur coats, crates with wedding rings and carpets and jewels and heirloom Shabbat candlesticks. Jack Weissman, a tough, smart New York Jew, is the lieutenant charged with guarding this treasure, a responsibility that grows more complicated when he falls in love with Iona a damaged, compelling Hungarian who's lost everything in the ravages of the Holocaust. So in 2003, we're talking more about 2013, this is where the novel starts. And I'd like you to kind of continue, Eilet, and explain a little bit about the story, how it ties in to what happened in the Holocaust, and what's the what's the real purpose here in you telling this, even through a novel? Well... This story
0: all, um, you know, I grew up, uh, I, I'm Jewish, and I grew up in a family. My father was a, um, in, he fought in World War II in, in Canada. He was a very young man, but um, he was on his way over when the war ended. And um, I grew up in a family that really that really cared about this history and stressed this history. And I thought I knew a tremendous amount about the Holocaust. But even um, with all of that education, the story of the Hungarian gold train was news to me. You know, when I discovered this this period of history—it really just astonished me, and I think it—it—it—it um, it, it, it really evoked for me what it meant, what the, the great loss that we experienced as a Jewish people, but also greater loss as a society as a whole from the Holocaust. Um, so the Hungarian gold train, for people who don't know, like me, I didn't until I started researching this book, was a trainload of the accumulated wealth of the Hungarian Jews. The Jews of Hungary were a fairly well-off community. Some of them were very, very wealthy. Some of them were noblemen who had, re- who had been ennobled by the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And um, they were forced to turn over all of their valuables to the fascist Hungarian government. They were allies of the Germans during the war. And I mean everything from diamonds and gemstones to stamp collections and cameras, from dishes to furs. And all of these valuables were then packed onto a train and when the Russians were advancing from the east into Hungary at the very, very end of the war, that trainload of personal property tried to make an escape to Berlin with the idea that, you know, Hitler would use it as part of, to finance his last stand. Um, But what was so remarkable about this is that the the train was staffed by Hungarian bureaucrats, these Hungarians who had been part of what they called the Jewish Property Office, meaning the the office responsible for confiscating property from the Jews. Mm -hmm. And they had military guards. And when the war ended, they suddenly found themselves in possession of up to $4 billion in today's currency worth of valuables of a murdered people, because by then, of course, they had managed to kill 90% of the Jews in the Hungarian countryside, half of the Jews of Budapest, and they turned the train over, you know, realizing that this was not going to look good, you know, that this, this was not a good situation for them to be in, they simply turned the train over to the American military and said, basically... This is a problem for you to solve. And then the American military had to decide, what do you do? What do you do with the accumulated wealth of a murdered people? And, you know, I have a, I have a, a set of candlesticks. They're silver plate. They're not silver. They're silver plate. They're mm-hmm. very large. My grand, My great-grandmother brought them with her from Minsk when she came to America. You know, she smuggled them in her skirts. Those mm-hmm. candlesticks mean the world to me. They are my most valuable yeah. possession. Yeah, but they're not actually valuable. You know, if antiques Roadshow came to town, I wouldn't they, they wouldn't be worth anything, but they're worth everything to me. Worth. And when I read about the Hungarian gold train, I started to think, what what would, what is the value of the of a pair of candlesticks like that when the great-granddaughter was never born, when the great-grandmother was sent mm. to the ovens at Auschwitz? Yeah. What is the value of a train load full of candlesticks like that? And what does that mean mm. about the you know, the the transient nature of life and the enduring nature of property and art. And that's really what I wanted to write about in this novel. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I you know, as I said, I celebrated the Holocaust Memorial service yesterday and people they read the names of, of people in our community who had family members and each name was read and with, with music in the background. And it, it was so compelling, Ayolette. And I think we just a love can't forget. Money. Yeah, we just can't forget. I think it, It. I mean, not just for me as a Jewish person, you as a Jewish person, but all of the genocides and all of these horrific things, we cannot forget, because this is how we got here. This is our history. And, and you know, if we forget, a novel, it will happen again. Right. And as a novelist, I feel like my job is,
0: you know, I i read fiction because I love to read. And mm. when I love to read. I love to learn when I read. But I also believe that there is an incredibly important element of reading, and that is to be transported and entertained. And that's almost a dirty word, but I really believe this. So, you know, this book I is agree. literary fiction. It's its not, you know, a commercial. It's not, it's not you know, a... a chiclet book it's real literary fiction but i also wanted it to be a story that would make you keep turning the pages and by making you keep turning the pages it would make you invested in these characters so that when so that the losses are real and profound and they mean something to you and i feel like that's the contribution i can make
1: is this the first time that you refer to the holocaust in any of the books you've written
0: It is the first time I've done it so directly. I have a character in Red Hook Road who is himself a survivor, and I refer very indirectly, but I felt like the Holocaust was such an important and massive topic. It was of such Mm -hmm. profound importance to me as a a person, to my family, that I was not willing to approach it until I felt like I had the capacity, until I felt like I was a good enough writer. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it took me... This many novels to feel like I wrote well enough to 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 write this book and um
1: and and frankly, tell it was, us the it, story yeah tell us the story of how you wove this in the story of the gold train okay and, uh, so the, and also how similar is it to the movie Monuments and Men? Well, it's not. It actually the only thing it shares with Monuments Men is the backdrop. It, it really is very it isn't
0: similar different. In, it's very different. So this is a story, it begins with the story of Jack Weissman, a young American lieutenant who is part of, you know, he has fought in the war through the Arden Forest. He was one of the people who liberated Dachau. But none of that is in the book. The book begins at the end of the war when he has been tasked with guarding the contents of this train. And he falls in love with a young woman, displaced person, a woman named Alona, who is from Hungary. She's a survivor of Dachau, a survivor of Auschwitz, and she um, and together they try to navigate this post-war world. I mean, you know, the Europe in the immediate aftermath of World War II was a was a, was a crazy place. I mean, the the landscape had been devastated. There were millions of people displaced from their homes, people traveling in all directions trying to reach home, and they were Um, 850,000 Jewish survivors of the camps and of Europe who had no homes to return to because the Poles and the Ukrainians weren't letting them come back home. And it's against this backdrop that this story of the two of them and of of the kind of, of the life that they try to imagine for themselves takes place. And then the story moves forward in time to Jack's granddaughter, Natalie, and Jack has, like many, many people, Jack has taken something from that train. He slipped a locket into his pocket, and he asks, He feels so terrible about having stolen this piece of jewelry that he asks Natalie at the end of his life, in the present day, if she will go to Budapest and if she will try to find the person to whom this might have belonged or the heir to the person who, to whom it might have belonged so that he can re so he can return it so that he can somehow repay this debt that he feels that he owes and um and in some ways that middle section of the book is almost like a caper novel because there are there's action and things happen and and it's um there's, a, there's a, it's a, you know, there's, a, there's a, a lost painting that gets recovered. And, and then at the end of the book, in the third section, I take you back in time all the way to 1913 in Budapest. And that's mm. where I show you who owned that necklace and tell you her story mm. so that you can really understand what we lost when that world was mm.
1: vanished into ash. Mm. What do you think, Ailette, if we, if we kind of go underneath all of this, what do you think is the message for the reader? I mean, yes, it's an amazing, I'm sure there's a love story in here as well. But yes, what, of course. what's the real message for the reader aside that? I mean, is it that life is precious? Is it that we can't forget? What's the message?
0: I think the, I think the message is, is that, um, that, that in each of us, in every individual there's the capacity for good, for great good, and the capacity mm. for great evil. And mm-hmm. it is our obligation as people to to nurture our capacity for goodness and our capacity for transformative goodness mm. and to suppress those baser sides of ourselves. Because the truth is that um, although, you know, all of the Hitler and Eichmann, those are t- horribly evil people but you know we see as you said in the beginning of our discussion these kinds of genocides happen again and again and, and they are most often we just, we just memorialize the anniversary of the, gen- of the genocide in Rwanda and that was neighbor mm-hmm. against neighbor you know and I think, I think it's only when we recognize that within ourselves is the capacity for great good and evil and that we, we force ourselves To nurture the good and suppress the evil, that we really um, become true members of the human family. Yeah, I think so. So, do you feel that you show both in this book? I do. You know, I I show both. You know, there's there um, when Jack is guarding the train, and this is something that's actually happened in real life history. The American. the American army high brass the generals and the lieutenant colonels. These are heroes. These are men like General Harry Collins, who liberated Dachau, who were who won the war for the Allies. And winning the war for the Allies, winning World War Two meant that you saved millions of lives, although of course many tens of millions were lost. Um but you know, these men were tasked with rebuilding Austria and Germany, and they were billeted in the homes of Austrian wealthy individuals, noblemen. And, and these wealthy Austrians, when they were forced to turn over their homes, but they weren't forced to turn over their belongings. So the American generals would arrive at these houses and they would be stripped bare. There would be nothing in them. And down across town was a warehouse full of carpets and dishes and glassware, anything you could need, anything you could imagine needing to furnish a home all the property of these Jews mm. who had been murdered. And the American Army officers began requisitioning property from the train. It seemed like a sensible thing to do, right, at the time. It just it made sense. There was nowhere else to get these belongings. But then, when they were sent home after their terms of service, many, many of these high-ranking American military officials took that property with them. Mm. And that's the moment when requisitioning turns to looting and that's a moment when these great men not just good men but great men did something that was they did something wrong and i think it's important to recognize that even in in the you know the 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 generation of people we like to call the greatest generation even in these men who are were capable of true heroism and true self-sacrifice they are also capable of of you know common sense we all
1: are well, exactly. Both in your novel and in real life, in terms of yep. them confiscating and taking. Yep. Both. I, you know, I
0: wrote about it in the novel, and it's true to life. There, you know, this ended as so often these things do in litigation, and eventually a lawsuit was brought, in fairly recently, on behalf of surviving Hungarians against the United States government for that theft, and there were settlements awarded, but, you know, even even that, when we have these settlements awarded, there's a certain justice, there's a certain satisfaction, I'm not denying that, but there's also, you know, there's a hollowness to that kind of justice, a hollowness to that kind of satisfaction, because the the real victims are not are, are all mostly gone, they're mostly dead, yeah. you know as I said, and if a Jew in the Hungarian countryside, 90 percent of, of the Jews in the Hungarian countryside were, were murdered during the Holocaust. so you know even if they had received the property back, what would it have meant to them when their family mm. had disappeared?
1: yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a stunning novel, and it's a long oh, thank novel: you. It's a stunning novel. yes. What, um, what, in your opinion, without giving it away, is the most poignant piece in this novel? Is it part of the love story between these two, or is it the revelation of what really happened during the Holocaust? I think I mean, for what... me, the, the section
0: that I love the most... I mean, I love them all. It's like trying to pick a, pick a favorite child. But the section that I think is the closest to my heart is the third and final section, which takes place in Budapest in 1913. And the reason that I love it—I mean, it's—it's it's, parts of it are funny and it's poignant and it has action. And so from a literary point of view, I love it, but also one of the reasons that I love it is that it it gives the reader a real sense of what we lost, what Mm -hmm. this vibrant, interesting, exciting community Mm -hmm. with vibrant, interesting, exciting people, what that that was like, and what we lost when we
1: lost it. Mm. I remember I interviewed the Bielski children. If you saw the movie Defiance... Yes, um yes, that was of about yes, that was two um two German Jewish um, fighters basically mm-hmm. and they were them, yes. and, they were in the war and what they basically did is decide they weren't going to be part of um, they weren't going into the camps. So right. they created a community in the woods. They were two freedom fighters. They created a community in the woods for about two or three years, where they mm-hmm. had a school, they had weddings, they had births, and these people lived outside for the two years. It might have been a little longer than that. And in the mm-hmm. end, they saved about 1,300 people. And when you figure that out over these number of generations, it's about maybe sixteen, seventeen thousand 17,000 people. How many people would have been saved... And how many people would have lived if you had six million? What is six million exponentially times where we are now?
0: I mean, millions and millions of people
1: that we lost, and the minds that we lost, and the scientists and the inventors Uh, that we lost.
0: City, city, you know, I think of that all the
1: time. What what would the world I think about
0: it from both the sublime to the ridiculous, right? So so on the one hand I think what would it have been like to visit a city like Kiev, which was a Jewish city and had so many Jews and I would have relatives there and what would that city have felt like to visit it the way, say, my Irish friends feel when they go back to Ireland? What would it have been like what what art, what literature, what science, yes. what would we have learned? What are we missing, you know? There's that amazing play by Tom Stoppard called Acadia, which is all about this woman mathematician. And what the play really is about is about how when we have ignored the accomplishments of women and suppressed the advancement of women for so many thousands of years we've missed all of this these great artistic and scientific endeavors that, that women could have achieved and and it's the same question you know and we you know when you when you kill someone you don't just kill that person you kill the whole world that they would have that would have come from them and that is i think the greatest tragedy i mean budapest in 1913 was this incredible city where Half the doctors were Jewish, and half the lawyers were Jewish, and they had great literature and a and a cafe culture, with dozens of newspapers published every day, and you know, great art and great um, and you know, a whole cultural history that simply vanished into thin air.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's amazing, and I think one of the things after the interview I had with the Bielski children, these are the adult children of the two freedom fighters right. I described, the, the, one of the daughters at the end of the interview cried and said, I don't want people to forget what we lost and what happened here, and I think that's what you're saying, you know, not only exactly. remembering what we lost, but remembering the gifts that were given to us, and I think that's what mm-hmm. you're talking about. Exactly, exactly. Because,
0: you know, my goal was not to write a sad book. There's tragedy in my book, but there's also love and there's also joy and there's also humor because that's what the world is and that's what life is. And I feel like if you only show the tragedy, then you are robbing yourself of the great pleasure that is the whole of humanity and the Mm. whole of life.
1: Yeah, I think it's so true. So, Annette, uh, Ali, tell me how to say your name correctly. I Yell
0: It. Ayalet.
1: I'll tell you a funny
0: story. At a reading the other night, two young women came up to have their books signed. And when I asked them their names, the first one said, my name is Ayalet. And the second one said, my name is Ayelet And they had met the night before at a bar where a boy had tried to pick up one of them. And when she rejected him after introducing herself, he said... Oh, my God, you have to meet the woman who just rejected me down at the other end of the bar, whose name was also Ayalet. And then when they both found out that I was reading in Boston that night, they rushed to come hear me so that we could take a photograph, three Ayelets. And none of us, had, you know, outside of Israel had ever met someone with the same name. That's symbolic. You are Israeli. I, I was born in Israel. My parents are from Canada. I grew up in the United States, but I was born in Israel. My parents had a brief period where they, they tried to make a go of it living in Israel, which did not work mm. for them.
1: Mm. Beautiful name. I yell it. I'm sure there's a meaning behind that name. It means gazelle, because mm. I guess someone thought I would be long and lean,
0: but since I mm. barely hit five feet, I think mm. I just, you know, I disappointed mm-hmm. the uh, the future predicted by the name.
1: Mm it, how would you say all of your books have a common thread or do they?
0: They do. I mean, I think if I if the most common thread for my books is is that I try very hard to write about real people. And whether I'm writing about someone in, you know, New York City in 2011 or I'm writing about a young woman suffragist in Budapest in 1913, I try very hard to write real characters who feel real things and experience real things. And, um, you know, it's a kind of realistic fiction that, um, that is what I, you know, I always try to re- write the book I want to read. Um, mm. So at different times
1: in my life that's meant mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. writing
0: different things. But so one interesting. Common that's, thread that's my radio always,
1: work. My radio work is I, I, I actually host the show and I ask the questions that I think are important.
0: That exactly. I think people
1: want to know the show about. you would yeah. want to listen to is the show you make. hmm Very and true. And I think
0: that's you know that kind of that that kind of authenticity. I mean, you can't fake that. You can't fake authenticity. Mm-hmm.
1: No, and that's something that I think is very called for today. I get that a lot from people about what I do. I'm sure you do too. Is people are craving the realness, mm-hmm. the real, authentic. This is really what I feel from my heart. I think exactly. more people want to know that today.
0: I think that's really true. I mean, you know, we, we live in a culture where there's a kind of falseness. You know, we're obsessed with reality television, but reality television is all contrived and fake. And, mm. and I feel like, you know, fiction, for all that it isn't true, it's a story. It can be the most honest thing in your life. I mean, I feel yeah. like my fiction is the most honest expression of who I really am as a person.
1: Beautiful. How can people find your book?
0: Well, you can find it at any local bookstore. You can find it at your local independent, at Barnes & Noble, at Amazon. Um, If you are someone who likes to do e-readers, I have this really cool thing on my website, which is just my name, ayalawaldman.com, where you can uh, can follow a link and I can personalize and sign your e-reader. I also have a great section on my website for book clubs and for anyone who's interested, with further readings and excerpts and video clips and things to learn more about the time and the period and the characters. Hmm. And you can also sign up if you're in a book club, because I think that book clubs are just this great phenomenon now that um, have really changed the way people appreciate literature. And I love doing book club appearances. And you can sign up to have me appear via Skype or FaceTime or on the phone at your book club on that page as
1: well. That's wonderful. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. I'd stay on the line for a minute. All right, folks, that wraps up this edition of Patricia Raskin Positive Living. Remember, stay healthy, stay happy, get the support you need, and know you can make your dreams come true. Until next time, I'm Patricia Raskin right here on America's Voice, America, See you next week.